Judges 16, and I will read from verse 21. And Father, we do need your spirit to give us life and light, and we ask now that you indeed would illuminate our hearts and our minds uh, to understand the truths that you have laid out before us from your word. And oh Lord, we ask you that not only would we be hearers of the word, but we would be doers. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Judges 16, I'll read from verse 21. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson, that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars, and Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me, and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed. With all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. For the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Esteol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. I'm going to miss Samson. I've enjoyed this study, and as we wrap the story of Samson, it's really designed for us to see the, the effects of his tragic life, and along with that, see that there is hope for any and all who cry out to God for mercy. I think the best way to understand this is that we've done it all along, is we're going to walk our way through the narrative, but this time, instead of waiting until the end to bring out application, we're going to kind of apply this as we go and as we end this very colorful and very wonderful narrative of I think one of the most tragic characters in scripture we're just going to look at three things first how you live your Christian life matters how you live your Christian life matters secondly we're going to look at how God hears the humble cry of his servants that God does hear the humble cry repentant cry of his servants. 
And then finally, we'll look at the fact that God's purposes are never thwarted. So that's where we're going. How you live your Christian life matters. God hears the humble cries of his servants. And then God's purposes are never thwarted. Now, why would I start by saying that your, your Christian life matters? Well, what is it that brought Samson to the place that God's enemies are attributing his capture to their false god, Dagon? This really is the question and really is the tragedy, isn't it? The entire Philistine empire knows of Samson's strength. Uh, they know of his power. They knew that he had killed 30 Philistines to pay off the debt after that he had the riddle that his potential wife was manipulated to get the answer to. And when he lost, he had to pay his debt. And they know that he killed 30 guys to get their outfits. They also know that he had taken 300 foxes and tied them tail to tail and put torches in between them and, and let, let them run in the wheat fields and in the grain that had already been harvested. They know that Samson had destroyed their harvests. They also know that Samson had, with a jawbone of a donkey, had killed a thousand men. And they also knew, among maybe many other things that aren't reported in Scripture, that he pulled the city gates that weighed 8,000 pounds and carried him up to Hebron 38 miles away. They know his strength, but they also know now that he's powerless. They know that they won and he lost. In this day in particular, their view of life and their view of battle was victory and defeat was determined by the gods. And at this point, their God had won. It was their God who had delivered Samson, who took away all of his power and now has saved them. Dagon was one of the many false gods during this era. He was a fertility deity who was also represented by grain and fish. Oftentimes in imagery, he was depicted with the torso of a man and the tail of a fish. He was really one of the first mermen that were ever created. Not mermaids, but a merman. Apart from this reference and one other reference in 1 Samuel 5, we don't hear any more about this false god. What we do know is that the people had come to give him and offer him a great sacrifice in verse 23. They're rejoicing, they're giving praise to their God, and the reason is in verse 24, where they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. I mean, those at the celebration are numbering in the thousands of leading men and women in Philistia. Verse 30 tells us that the lords were there, those would have been the five lords that paid Delilah 1,100 shekels apiece for learning Samson's secrets. These are the movers and shakers. These probably are not just the political leaders in the nation. These are probably leaders in commerce and leaders in business and leaders in entertainment. These are the important people, the smart people, the rich people, the famous people, like a, like a Washington, D.C. fundraising gala, basically. And the place is packed. In verse 27, the house is full. And it's so packed, we're told there's another 3,000 people on the roof. So if there's 3,000 people on the roof, there had to be 
least that many or maybe double that inside. This is a vast crowd. And they bring Samson out, and he's going to be the entertainment for the evening. Uh, the word entertain is used three times, twice in verse 25 and once in 27. Now, the text doesn't tell us what he did, but it doesn't really matter. Verse 25 tells us their hearts were merry, which would indicate that this was a complete debauched drunk fest. Um, our hearts are merry and everything else that goes along with it. So picture a mob of drunken Philistines giving praise to their God for delivering Samson. And, and, they're, and they're just howling. And they're just carrying on. And surely the main part of their entertainment was mocking and sneering at bald, blind, shackled, powerless Samson as they rejoiced in Dagon. Now giving credit to Dagon actually is an affront to the Lord God of heaven. God and only God deserves praise. God and only God deserves glory. It should bother us when anyone puts false gods and idols above the maker of heaven and earth. Their, their praise of Dagon uh, are blasphemous words because their God is not a god. He's a merman. He's a fish-looking deity that, that is as lifeless as a rock. That's as lifeless as a door. God and God alone gave Samson into the hands of the Philistines. And yet there they are having a great feast and a great time of jubilation. And they're praising a lifeless object, proclaiming that this lifeless object, Dagon, is greater than the Lord God of heaven and giving glory to him because they believe now they've been protected and they've actually been delivered by their God. And what we need to see here is that it's Samson's sin and his rebellion and his rejection of God and refusal to live as a faithful believer that caused this. See, he was the cause of their blasphemy against God. Everything we do as believers, has consequences. And how we live our lives in the community really matters. We shouldn't live in a such a way that we allow the enemies of God to give praise to their false gods because of our sinful behavior. And this is really a truth taught not just in the Old Testament, but it's also taught in the New. Remember after David sinned with Bathsheba, and Nathan confronts David. And after David responded to the confrontation with repentance and confession, listen carefully. This is after David came to the place where he acknowledged his sin and he confessed his sin and he repented of his sin. It's then when Nathan states, and I'm quoting this from the New American Standard, the Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die, thank the Lord. However... Because by this deed, you've given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also that's born to you shall surely die. David's adultery, his murder, his rejection of God, his disobedience caused his child's death. And it also caused, I'm focusing more on this, the enemies of God, those who hate God, those who don't know God, it caused those who weren't even looking, people who are looking for a reason not to believe in God, it caused them to continue to blaspheme. David's sin, Samson's sin, my sin, your sin, 
opens the door for God's enemies to blaspheme his great name. Whenever a Christian sins, especially in the public arena, God's name, in a sense, is dragged through the mud. In fact, turn to Romans 2 for a minute. Romans 2 makes the exact same statement. As I said, Old Testament and New Testament. Romans chapter 2, Paul's are making a case to the Jews. He's speaking to that they're just as sinful, just as depraved as Gentiles. That their religious heritage, their upbringing didn't make them right with God. And then he starts asking them some very direct questions about how their behavior contradicts their confession. Notice Romans chapter 2, verse 22. Paul writes, You who say that one must not commit adultery, <laughs> do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The word blaspheme is really interesting. It means, it means to extinguish a fire. It means to cause a fervent activity to cease. It means to stop or quench. And what that means is that the day, that the way we live our lives can extinguish the proclamation of God's name. We as believers can and do hinder the gospel by how we live. We can also promote the gospel by how we live. Either way, every day you live your life, you're either promoting the gospel and pointing people to Christ, or you're living your life in such a way that the gospel is not being promoted and leading people away from Christ. How often have we seen public figures make such a bold stance on morality and purity, only to discover that they were doing the very same things they're standing against? Or men in the ministry getting all caught up in, adult, in immorality or embezzlement or some other public sin. I mean, 1 Timothy 3 reminds us that church leaders are to be well thought of by outsiders so they may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And the disgrace that leaders fall into when they're not well thought of by those outside the church gives the outside world one more opportunity to speak against God. It's almost exactly ties into what our ladies are learning in James, in their, in their study on James, that our faith should produce works. Our belief should produce practice. The works we do do not save us, but if we're saved, we will produce good works. When they're not there, when we proclaim to be followers of Christ, the unsaved people around us mock the God that we proclaim to follow. This is exactly what happened to Samson. Remember when he told Delilah, when they were, remember they were playing their flirty game? Samson, the Philistines are coming. We saw that last week. Look again at his statement when Samson finally told her his whole heart. Chapter 16, verse 17. Chapter 16, verse 17. He says, a razor has never come upon my head, for I've been a Nazarene, I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. He's not speaking in the past tense here. He didn't say, I used to be a Nazarite. He's saying, I have been, and I'm still consecrated to God. He's currently with this Philistine woman. 
Earlier in the chapter, he just uh, left a brothel. He's not married to Delilah, and she's seducing him. In a sense, however, he's verbally identifying, verbally confessing, verbally professing his faith while living a life that contradicts everything about his confession. Of course the Philistines are mocking God. Of course the name of God is extinguished and put out and powerless among God's enemies. Because our behavior before the unsaved and before the church folks matters. I know of a young man years ago who, who became a believer out of a lifestyle of immorality and partying and so on and, and uh, when he was in high school. And the young man was a freshman in college, and he, he found himself, didn't find himself. You never find yourself. He put himself. You don't find yourself in bad places. You put yourself in bad places. He put himself in a place like Samson where he shouldn't have been. And one of his old friends was there and had a joint of marijuana, and he pulled it out, and this young man looked at him and said, I shouldn't do that. And the guy looked at him and said, why? Well, about a year and a half ago, I committed my life to Jesus Christ. And the guy just mocked him. And then he said, light up a joint, and I'll tell you about it. Like Samson, claiming his vow, yet living contrary to it. Like David committing public sin, this opens the door for God's enemies to mock God, and it literally extinguishes the proclamation of the gospel. And quite honestly, since the average unsaved person, we all know, is not going to come to church anytime soon. The average unsaved person is not pursuing any of our really cool church websites. And since it's true that the only gospel they will ever see is how you live your life in front of them, then your behavior in private matters and your behavior in public matters more than you realize. Which should cause us to pause and ask the question, is our behavior Christian? What is your reputation like with those who don't know Christ? What kind of employee are you? What kind of neighbor are you? Do you have a clear conscience before God and man? What is your reputation at home? Behavior matters, and Samson's behavior opened the door for the Philistines to give glory to their false god, and in the process, God's name is maligned. But notice secondly, notice secondly, that God hears the humble cries of his broken servants. Now this is the real climax of the entire story, and it's both a warning and it's a hope. The warning is, as I said last week, the warning is that Samson's life is recorded for the nation of Israel to see that there will come a day when God says enough is enough. He's been patient and forbearing with Israel. In fact, if you go back to the very beginning of God's deliverance from Egypt, he had been patient with Israel long before the book of Judges. We heard of his patience when Craig read from Psalm 106. Let me go back to it. I thought the timing of that reading and where we are in Judges was absolutely perfect. Let's go back to Psalm 106 for a moment. And let me just look at a couple of verses. Psalm 106. We'll start just in verse 7. Psalm 106, verse 7. 106, 7. The psalmist writes, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt... Did not consider your wondrous works. 
They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power. We are reading the exact same thing in Judges, aren't we? The people didn't remember God's deliverance from the crossing of the Jordan. They didn't remember the initial conquest of the land under Joshua. And like previous generations, they rebelled. But that big word is yet in verse 8. Yet, yet, we saw over and over that God saved them anyway. He saved his people when they were rebellious after coming out of Egypt. And he continues to save his rebellious people in the book of Judges on multiple occasions solely for the sake of his great name. Jump down to verse 13. But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. They forgot his works in the books of Exodus and Numbers, and we've been seen in Judges. They've forgotten God over and over and over. Verse 21 says they forgot God again. And then in verse 35, this is clearly what we've been reading and studying. In verse 35, they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. For those of you who have been here since the beginning of Judges, haven't we seen this? They didn't obey. They didn't destroy the people. And so God's people have become Canaanites. They've learned the ways of their pagan gods. And, and we know that Jephthah did, in fact, sacrifice his daughter. The land is polluted with blood. And I've said a number of times that even in the middle of all of this sin and all this rebellion, God continued to have mercy. He continued to demonstrate his forbearance. He continued to raise up judges and deliver his unrepentant people, even when they didn't even ask to be delivered. But as I said last week, there's a time when God says enough is enough. And the quote that I shared last week by R.C. Sproul is worth me reading again. He says, God's grace is not infinite. God is infinite. God is gracious. We experience the grace of an infinite God, but grace is not infinite. God sets limits to his patience and forbearance. He warns us over and over again that someday the axe will fall and his judgment will be poured out. And verse 40 is where we see God's forbearance come to an end in Psalm 106. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. And he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations. So that those who hated him ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them. And they were brought into subjection under their power. This is the history of Israel. This is the big story of the nation in the book of Judges. And beloved, this is the life of Samson. He had no regard for his parents' instruction and his parents' warnings. He was drawn toward women outside of Israel and was continually immoral and impure. He violated his Nazarite vow on a number of occasions. And each of these, 
each of these that any moment God could have poured out his judgment upon him. Yet God was gracious and he continued to allow Samson to lead the nation and keep his strength and God delivered him. And Samson rarely acknowledged God and when he did, he went right back to his former ways until, until God had had enough. God's anger is kindled against Samson, and he's, he's been given over to the Philistines. And when Samson has all of his hair shaved off, after he tells Delilah about his Nazarite vow, chapter 16, verse 20, when he states this, after his hair is gone, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. It's right here when it is over. In a very real sense, God is saying to Samson, you have mocked my name. You've rejected your calling. You've rebelled against my word for the final time. And when the nation of Israel hears the story read, and when you as New Testament believers hear the story read, it's designed for your ears to perk up and examine ourselves, all of us, and ask the question, are we presuming on God's kindness? Are we presuming on the grace of God? If you're living a life of unrepentant sin, and God has allowed you to continue on, and it seems like he's turned a blind eye, beware, because he hasn't, and he won't do it forever. Turn back to Romans 2 for a moment. Romans 2, this idea that God's forbearance or kindness has a limit, again, is not just an Old Testament truth. It's taught in the New as well. Paul writes in Romans 2, and I'll, and I'll read from verse 4. He writes, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. His kindness is not bringing judgment upon us. His not giving us what we deserve is designed to lead us to repentance, not to just continue on in our sin and rebellion. If we do continue to presume on his kindness, verse 5 tells us that we are storing up wrath for ourselves. Beloved, God sees our sin. And when he gives us the grace and holds back his judgment, and that doesn't cause us to repent and return to him, then we must be ready for his wrath. Now, quite honestly, this has been a lost concept in so many parts of American evangelicalism. There, there, there's a circulating idea among believing Christians that goes like this. I am forgiven past, present, and future. So God looks at me through the righteousness of his son. God has completely dealt with sin and exhausted all of his anger on the cross of Jesus. So because of Jesus, God will never be angry or never be disappointed with us ever again. God is never displeased with us. All of his displeasure was poured out on Jesus. 
Wrong answer. God is displeased with his children when they sin. We're no longer under God's eternal condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We are no longer under his eternal wrath. A genuine believer will be preserved until the day of redemption. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit that will never be taken away. Thanks be to God. If you're a believing Christian, you will not suffer his wrath, but you can displease him. Hebrews 12 tells us that God will discipline and chastise you for things that do displease him. The idea that, you, that there's nothing you can do to ever cause God to be disappointed contradicts so many verses in Scripture. And at the end of the day, the idea comes actually from an older heresy called antinomianism, which just means no law. The word anti means no, namas means law, and a person who's an antinomian believes that we are not bound by the law in any way. That since grace covers all of our sin, how we live doesn't matter. And yet Paul states in Titus 2.11, For the grace of God has appeared to offer salvation to all people, and the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness, to say no to worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age how we live does matter we saw that in our first point grace is not the absence of law it's grace that gives you the power to keep the law to walk in obedience and when we walk in disobedience at least two things take place one god is grieved two his spirit is quenched Ephesians 4.30 commands us not to grieve the Spirit of God. The word grieve means to cause someone to be sad, to cause someone to be sorrowful, to cause someone to be distressed. In 1 Thessalonians 5, we're told not to quench the Spirit or not to extinguish it or put it out. Uh, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 4 for a moment. 1 Thessalonians 4, with this whole idea of um, whether or not God is ever displeased with his children. 1 Thessalonians 4, I'll read from verse 1. Paul writes, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk, how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do, that you do so more and more. If we're commanded or urged to walk and to please God and do it more and more, then there's obviously things that we can do that either please him or not please him. There are behaviors that will quench the spirit. There are behaviors that will grieve the spirit. There are behaviors he's pleased with, and there are behaviors that he is not pleased with. Listen, because we're Christian believers does not mean that God looks at us with this lens of perpetual approval, of perpetual happiness, of perpetually being pleased with us. It's no different than your own children. When your children act in a way that causes you to be displeased, they do that, and sometimes it grieves you. But they're still your children. They haven't lost a relationship. They just have lost fellowship lost closeness, intimacy, and it returns with confession and repentance. 
And this does go back to our first point, that our behavior as believers matters. The life of Samson is a warning that if you continue down the trajectory, God is saying, I will come against you. I will discipline you. I will chastise you. I will take you captive. I'll make your life miserable and difficult for the purpose of humbling you. But do not presume on God's kindness. Isn't this the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15? Was God pleased with his rebellion? Was he just happily looking at him through the lens of Jesus? What happened to the young man? God was not pleased. He was so not pleased that he sent a famine to the very land where the young man was. So there was no food, and he ends up longing to eat the food that the pigs were eating. So when we see Samson, bald and blind and shackled in verse 26, and he's so non-functional that he's led by the hand of a young man, when you see him in this condition, the warning to the nation, the warning to you and I, is if you continue in your rebellion, this is where you're headed. Now, of course, we've read the rest of the story. We know what happened because we know the rest of the Old Testament. We know that Israel was taken captive by Assyria in 721. We know that Judah was taken captive by Babylon in 586. We know that they didn't heed the warnings. So the life of Samson now becomes prophetic. What God did to Samson, God will do to the nation. And the application is, this is what God will do to you personally. This is what God will do to the church corporately if the church doesn't repent, if we continue to presume on his kindness. But, but is that it? Is that the big lesson? Well, it's a big lesson, but not the only lesson. Though God's forbearance has its limit, and this is a warning, the second part of the point, thanks be to God, is that God still hears the humble cries of his repentant servants. Did you hear that? God still hears the humble cries of his repentant servants. I, for one, am ever so grateful for that. You cannot miss that little phrase in verse 22. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now, Samson's power was and strength didn't come from his hair. It came from God. We know it didn't come from his hair because his final act of strength didn't come until after he cried out to God to give him strength one last time. It wasn't because his hair was growing. But humanly speaking, this is here for us. This is here as, as a hope. What the reference to his hair is designed to mean is... What Samson lost has the possibility of returning. It's a clue to us, the reader. It's a verse of potential restoration. We know that the prodigal son was restored to his father when he came back from his rebellious wandering. He came back broken. He came back hungry. He came back in need. He came back asking for forgiveness. God is a God of hope. But this is not like the other times in Judges when God poured out his favor on the unrepentant. No, this is God's mercy and grace on those who are legitimately crying out to him. And it's designed for the nation to see in living color that since God heard Samson's cry for mercy, since God heard Samson's cry for help, since God heard Samson's cry for deliverance, he will hear you. What God is saying here 
as a summary of the life of Samson and an admonition to the nation of Israel, something like this. Israel, first and foremost, do not forget God. Repent of your idolatry. Repent of your taking foreign wives. Repent of your rejection of my word. Return to me. Walk faithfully with me. Do not reject me. Love me with all your heart. Love me with all your soul. Love me with all your mind. And if you do not, if you do not, know the day will come when I will come against you. It's like God saying, I've given you many opportunities to repent and return. But the day will come. The day will come when I'll shave your head and gouge out your eyes and lock you in prison. But, but, while you're in prison, balled and bound and shackled, when things are so miserable that you have no hope and no way to escape, I am still here. Call out to me. And I will deliver you. And that's, that's exactly what Samson does, isn't it? Verse 28. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord God, please remember me. Please strengthen me only this once, oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. His cry is an acknowledgement of God in his statement of recommitment, his renewed statement of faith, if you please, in a state of broken blindness with nowhere to go and nowhere to turn and being led by the hand of a boy. This former judge, this mighty warrior, so strong, so invincible, presumed on God's kindness, finally comes to the end of himself. God's opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And Samson is now humble. And God is hearing his cry to avenge his enemies who are actually God's enemies. And here the point that we cannot miss is that no matter how deep as a believer you go into the abyss of sin, no matter how far you drift, no matter how far you go into the far country, he will still hear your cry for mercy. A humble and a contrite heart, God will not despise. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. I don't know if any of you have ever walked away from the Lord. I can tell you my story. I don't know if any of you have drifted. I don't know currently right now if any of you are involved in any, any of these things, but I guarantee you God knows your sin. And let me tell you about our great loving God who works in all of our lives, in all of our circumstances, to chastise us, to discipline us, and to even imprison us for the sole purpose, like Samson, of lovingly bringing us back to him. Hebrews 12, 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And let me add, if you can or have been living a life of sin and you have not and are not disciplined by God, then beware, because you may not be a believing Christian. 
One of the surest affirmations of being a Christian is that God disciplines his sons, just like you discipline your own children. Hebrews tells us if you're not without discipline, if you are without discipline, you may not be his child. So God bringing judgment upon Samson and later judgment upon the nations out of love. Samson was called by God while in his mother's womb. He's part of God's covenant family, and God does not have spoiled children. He will not have a spoiled nation. And when the nation is in captivity, when the nation is under Babylonian and Assyrian rule, and they remember Samson, they'll remember his hair, they'll remember his prayer, and they'll remember God's care. I should have made that a sermon title, but I thought about it this morning and the bulletin was already printed. They're reminded that if they cry out to God, God will hear them and come to their aid. They will think back. If God heard Samson, maybe he'll hear me. And God did hear them. God did come to their aid. God did send a deliverer. God did fulfill his promise. Because during the centuries of captivity, God heard their cry till the day came. When a virgin gave birth to a son, and they called his name Jesus, who came to save his people from their sins. Now, isn't that an encouragement? That there's more grace in Jesus than sin in us. And finally, finally we need to see that in all things, God's plans are never thwarted. Let's go all the way back to Samson's calling in chapter 13, verse 3. Chapter 13, verse 3, and follow along. It's been a few weeks since we read this. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. God miraculously intervened in a barren woman's womb to give her a child that was to live his life consecrated and dedicated and sacrificially to God. And as we've gone through the entire life of Samson, we know that he rejected his calling and didn't listen to the counsel of his parents, and, and he violated every aspect of the Nazarite vow. But look at his purpose. Why did God give Manoah and his wife a son? What was Samson's purpose? The end of verse 5. He shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And what did Samson accomplish in his life? At the end of his life, what you could have put on his tombstone was, Here lies Samson, the one who began to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Samson did exactly what God called him to do. You might look at me and say, really, Rick? Look at his life. It's a wreck. It's tragic. It's full of sin. He didn't follow God. He ended up bald and blind and in prison. This book isn't about Samson. It's about a holy God who is so powerful and so mighty and so infinite and so all-knowing and so sovereign that his purposes are never thwarted. As, as one commentator puts it, the working of God's providence affirmed throughout Scripture is seen in all its mystery because it is accomplished 
through the freely chosen actions of the human participants in the drama. The working of God's providence, affirmed throughout Scripture, is seen in all its mystery because it is accomplished through the freely chosen actions of the human participants in the drama. Samson's behavior, though sinful and tragic and grieving, is still mysteriously used to accomplish God's will for his glory. God, who had a plan to begin to deliver his people from the hands of the Philistines through Samson, and even though his servant was sinful and reluctant and blind and in chains, God still used him to fulfill his purposes. It just reminds us of God's sovereignty over the affairs of men. It reminds us that he rules and reigns, that not even our sin can thwart his purposes. As Nebuchadnezzar declared in Daniel 4, nothing can ward off his hand. Nothing can stop him from doing what he intends to do. He uses the weak things in the world to confound the strong, the foolish to confound the wise. And in his sovereign, omnipotent power tells us that all of his plans will be accomplished. There's nothing outside his sovereign care and nothing outside his complete control. And since plans are never thwarted, we can be confident that whatever we are facing, whatever we are going through, whatever difficulty is never taken by surprise. It's not a trite and pat answer to use Romans 8.28 in the right circumstances, that God does in fact work all things together for our good and his glory. God's purposes are never thwarted, even when things look so bleak. How much bleaker can it be when your servant is so weak, so blind, and so shackled, being led around by the Philistine stage by the hand of a boy, while thousands of drunk, debauched Philistines are jeering and sneering and mocking? Beloved, that is bleak. And then Samson cries out, Let me die with the Philistines. He bowed with all of his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. It seems like the slaughter was so great that Samson's family, the text goes on to say, was able to go get his body without opposition and give him a proper burial. And, and I think that being laid in the tomb of his father was one last statement of reconciliation. I don't think I'm reading into this because it didn't have to be here. I know they're just bones, okay? I know they're just bones. That's all they are. But I think there's some symbolism here. Being right with God makes you right with others. The prodigal son was restored to his father on earth. I think Samson symbolically is restored with his father who's in heaven. Manoah had died a long time ago. The last thing we know about their relationship was Samson demanded to marry against their parents' wishes. And Manoah and his wife had no idea that their son's sin would be used to accomplish God's purposes. So surely, they went to their grave, shattered and confused, yet resting in God's sovereign hand. And I think this little statement here, that he's buried here is just for us because God is a restoring God. I think the tomb of his father symbolizes the statement about him in Hebrews 11, that he died a man of faith, buried in the tomb of his faithful mom and dad. What a God. What a Savior. 
And what a joy to know that even in our darkest days, even the times that are the most confusing and, and the clouds are down, we just can't see that God is still on the throne, fulfilling his purposes for his glory. And with that, we can rest. As we close in song, the, um, it is well with my soul. It just fits so well into what I just said. The story, there's a story behind the song. You may or may not have heard it. The author of the words and his wife and his girls were in New York, and they were supposed to go on holiday to England. Something happened on his job, and he had to stay, so he sent his wife and his girls ahead. Three or four days later, he got a telegram from his wife that said, hmm, all gone, I'm alone. And he found out that there was a, the ship sank in the middle of the Atlantic, and his wife was the only one who lived. So the telegraph came back and said, all gone, I'm alone. He got on a boat, the next boat he could, and he was going over to England to be with his wife, and he asked the captain of the ship to tell him approximately where his girls were buried. And that's where he penned these words. Father, I, I stand amazed at your kindness. I stand amazed at your love and mercy. Father, I stand amazed at the fact, God, that you give us multiple chances, Lord, and even when we presume on your kindness, oftentimes you give us more chances. Father, and then when you bring your judgment upon us, Lord, you do it out of love, and even as we're under your judgment, that you still are available for us to come to you and repent. And Lord, I just have you couldn't, no one can make this up. Lord, you are omnipotent and powerful and forgiving and full of grace and mercy. And I just pray this morning that anyone here who's struggling and wrestling, Lord, we live in a sin-cursed world and things just never go right, it seems like. I just pray that we would, in fact, be able to rest in you and have the peace that passes all understanding as we close in song. In Christ's name we pray, amen.